My name is Ryan Miner. I am the host of a Minor Detail podcast. Several of the Montgomery County Board of Education candidates are joining a Minor Detail podcast for the very first time to discuss their candidate platforms and the issues that will inevitably decide the future of our local education system. Jay Guan is an at-large candidate for the Montgomery County Board of Education. He joins me now. My name is Ryan Miner. You're listening to a Minor Detail Podcast. I have the pleasure today of having Jay Guan. He's an at-large candidate for the Montgomery County Board of Education. Jay, welcome for the first time. Yeah, thank it's you for having me. exciting times, except, you know, we're in this whole global lockdown. Well, um, we'll make the best of it. Well, we're going we're gonna to do the very best. Um, but tonight we're going to talk about some important education issues that are mm-hmm. defining the Montgomery County Board of Education race. And I always like to start out by acknowledging the the essence of this race and i believe that this this race on the ballot our local montgomery county board of education race i think it's really important and in fact i think it might be the most important race this year in montgomery county given the the discussions around education issues the the, uh the much discussed boundary analysis um which i hear they're going to return uh, sometime today if they haven't already done so. I think actually the latest news on the boundary analysis is that the interim report is delayed again. Oh. Um, so I think they, they just announced it and I think personally I'm uh, not surprised because at, <laughs> at the end it's an extremely compli- complicated uh, you know, data set. So the first thing that I want to do today is to have you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background, your professional career, uh, your personal narrative, mm-hmm. where you were born and raised and how you ultimately came to make the decision to run for the Montgomery Bounty, Montgomery County Board of Education. Jay, um, the floor is yours, my friend. All right. Uh, so my name is Jay Guan. Uh, I am running for the Board of Education at large seat. Um, so I will start with my professional background. I am an aerospace engineer and I have uh, worked for uh, the Federal Aviation Administration and also the uh, National Aeronautical and Space Air Administration. So, um, work with them with uh, for uh, for various projects. Uh, one of which is the um, TDRS, so tracking and data relay satellite system. It is a constellation of satellites that basically is parked out in geostationary orbit, and they basically, as the name suggests, relay uh, data for for most of our uh, spacecrafts. Wow. So that's um, way over my head. <laughs> that is so cool. It, it's not. It, it's not actually. It's not as complicated or, or intimidating as it seems. I think at the end of the day, it's kind of like think of it as a um, almost like a modem. Yeah. So basically, you can you can only see a certain thing, but you want to talk to basically someone on the other side of the earth. Right. So basically, you're just talking to talking to that satellite that you can see and the satellite can pass on the data. So my wife is a huge. Well, I, I would say myself as well. We're a huge NASA buffs, and we love NASA. My my wife's grandfather um, worked for the CIA and had a lot to do with mm. with this with space exploration back in the '60s. I, I got to tell you, man, uh, that's you have quite a cool career. Um, where'd you go to school? So I went to uh, my undergraduate is from uh, UC San Diego, mm-hmm. and I got my master's degree in uh, system engineering from Johns Hopkins. So this is oh. after about. Um, about four years into my, four to five years into my career, that's when I decided engineer mm-hmm. engineering is the thing for me. Great schools, and you said earlier offline that you're a West Coast guy. 
Yep. Came so, came here what 10, 10 to Montgomery County about ten years ago. Yep. So I graduated in, graduated in two thousand nine and then came here for work. And you're a husband. And by the way, you, the camera can't see this, but his his very nice, lovely wife is sitting behind us, and that's cool. We invite everybody. So candidate spouses are certainly welcome to to come and join this fun, and uh, and then you know, of course, after the interview, they can critique it. So <laughs> she does that a lot. That's good. That's <laughs> my wife is my she proofreads everything that I do. Otherwise, I'd be lost. Um, and you have uh, one child, four years old. Yep, I have a four year old who's who is about to go to Wilson Wims. He's a September baby, so mm-hmm. he has to apply for early entrance. But um, so. That's, that's where the capacity issue comes into play for us because typically what early entrance is that if the school is over capacity, they, they cannot really, they don't have room to take take so-called early entrance yeah. in kindergarten. So. How did you arrive at your decision to seek out a seat and run for this Board of Education seat on the Montgomery County Board of Education? So for the, for the past four years, I've been, I've been um, an education advocate on various issues and in, in in particular, I I'm an advocate for the Asian American and slash Chinese American community. I think that at times when we are talking about education issues, a lot of our, especially our immigrant parents and families, are somewhat left in the dark. Because at the end of the day, the channel and channel in which they get the information, the way in which they perceive schools and how schools operate is a little bit different than say native-born parents. So. Part of my uh, my uh, volunteer work is to serve an advocate for these uh, immigrant parents. Wow! So um, I've been doing that for the past four years, and as I get to know the uh, get to know MCPS more, there are issues that I see and that I think that should be fixed, and then and then eventually, and also because of my professional career, I'm looking at what's happening in the outside world, and I'm pretty sure you see this too. And we look at our own educational system, and you see that there is somewhat of a disconnect, or or slow to adjust. I I I agree with that. There is a disconnect. And you mentioned that you're an advocate for immigrant parents. You yourself are an immigrant. Yep. Where where did you immigrant from? Okay, so when I um, I came here as a kid from China, so I actually first uh, landed in in New York City first. Wow. I went to middle school there. So yeah, I was I was I, I grew up in a, a poor immigrant family. So my parents um, were garment factory workers. You know, back then they used to have those, and uh, still in stateside. I think they still do, but in limit in small numbers. So I came here when I was twelve, and went through middle school, high school, and then eventually college, and and then my and then. That's where I am now. I, I was watching your video mm-hmm. um, on your homepage, and your your website is at jaguan4, the number 4, boe.com. Mm-hmm. And you have a, a great video that is on the homepage, and you talked about your experiences when you were growing up in public education, yep. and you said you were part of the, the uh, English as a Second uh, Language. Yep. Um, and I remember growing up in Western Maryland, and we had the ESOL program in my elementary school and it didn't really hit me until later in life just how vitally important that program is that to, to, to help public school students um, who come over to the United States or immigrants or live in an immigrant family to then learn language that language and uh, do you want to share that experience what that was like mm, I think well that experience was extremely interesting for me because when I first landed in in public school for the first couple of weeks, it was just it was just a whirlwind. It right. was you know I was twelve years old then. It was a completely new environment, completely new country. It was, 
a mixture of curiosity, excitement, anxiety, and in general, I'm just in awe because the educational system here is is vastly different from that in China. So to give you an example, so in China, you, the students don't travel. They stay in one classroom, the teachers move around. Ah. But when I got here, so the middle school, in, in middle school, I actually ended up having to go to different classrooms or different classes, and that was an adjustment for me. And The seven, seven periods. Yeah, the seven periods, and you had to be at different places at different time, and you had to make it through crowded hallways within five <laughs> minutes. And, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so that experience was interesting. But what, particularly with Esau, it was that, um, it was that sense of um, separation mm-hmm. because you're not, sometimes you're not in the same class as your, your classmates. And you feel that sense of exclusion, exclusion, not belonging. So you, you, at least for personally for me, I had the, I was, I really wanted to get out of Esau. So it, I was really driven to get out of Esau. But yeah, during that, during the time that I was there, it was you know, a sense of exclusion, and you know, for uh, for about half a year, six months, I was effectively deaf mute, (laughs) deaf mute, and and blind Mm. because you know my. I don't understand anything that was written in school. Did you know any English prior to coming to the United States? Very little. Okay. Yeah. So very little. Um, It took me about three months to uh, get my listening skill up such that I can understand the teachers, basically understand the teachers. And then it it took me until at least six months for me to understand the system enough, have the language skill to to participate in, in normal class. But I think ESOL at the end is that is that um, gateway to integrate a lot of immigrant uh, students yep. into the so-called mainstream society. And I think that I think you're exactly right, Jay. Let's talk some issues. And, All right. Um, I want to talk about inequities in our schools, and especially here in Montgomery County, and the inequities range from poverty rates to mm-hmm. students um, who come from families of extreme means, um, and then. We have after-school enrichment programs, arts programs um, that vary from school to school. Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested in your perspective about how you would address these inequities as a Board of Education member and working collectively as a board to close the gap. Mm. I think I think my, my um, personal experience and childhood experience would play a big role here because I was that farm kid. So I was... I was that immigrant kid, and I was that farm kid. And for anyone who's listening um, who may not have heard the term farm, it means free and reduced meals. Yeah. So I think, I think coming from that background it gives me some unique perspectives and insight as to what, uh, how to the, the approach or the principle in which we should use in trying to address these issues. So for example, in, 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 when trying to resolve inequities, so we need to look at access, the ease of access to assistance and various programs that these uh, low-income families would need. So one of the one of the big issues, especially during a boundary study that I keep on raising, is that uh, commute time actually impacts low-income families far more than, than families with means. Because, to put it bluntly, a lot of low-income families may have one car or they rely on, on public transportation altogether. So if the school is far away from the low-income family, then it becomes difficult for them, for their family, for the student to access um, any type of service that you have at the school, whether it be after-school program, mm-hmm. instrument programs, or in some uh, in some schools where there are highly um, high concentration of poverty, they have they have health centers, they have various um, social services. 
And if you want want families to access that, you can't. You if they're too far, they they affect you effectively bar them from access, accessing it. So I think that I think ease of access is something that we need to look into when when it comes to addressing inequity. And two, uh, um, two, from from my own personal perspective, when I was that kid, do I? Do I really care about what the research says about outcomes and how that linked to linked to poverty? As a kid sitting in in that classroom, those are those are way above my head. Mm-hmm. What I care about, what that kid would care about, is I don't know what extracurricular activities are. Who do I turn to? They need to have that someone to turn to. I think that is more important when we and in trying to address the inequities and, and achievement gap. We're looking. We need to take a more pragmatic approach to how to make sure that our student, our student in most needs, have that access to the services that they need. So you you say that in Montgomery County Public Schools, then having someone that students can turn to, whether it be maybe a, a counselor or a um, an education professional, the principal. That's come to think of it. When I was in high school or middle school and we wanted to learn about extracurricular activities, it was maybe listed on the morning news. We had like a television sort of internal news um, that they would talk about. But but now I think, well, who's the dedicated advisor for certain programs? And some students just don't know that and yep. they want to get involved. Yep. So I think, well, I think now we're getting into implementation details where how basically we're trying to determine how do we get the information to to the, the students and the families. Um, so one of the, I guess, big revelation in, in recent months is that social media actually, mm-hmm. you know, information travels on social media far fa- faster than official channels, for better or for worse. But I think this is in terms of communication strategy and, and in terms of implementation, this is something that we can look into. How do we get that information, get the right information to, to the families in need or simply in, in all honesty, I mean, even even kids in school nowadays, they, they get the information from social media. So. Sure. Yeah, they're using, what, Snapchat, Snapchat and yeah. Instagram. And I know that we live in our kids, their social media, but uh, Facebook is another big one. And yep. what else? Um, Twitter. Twi- yeah, Twitter. I use Twitter for everything, for news. I, I keep in line. I pull my hair out when I read the president's tweets. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, that's um, yeah, that's also the, the curse of social media, that yeah. it could be information overload. But I think at the end, it is still a, a, a worthwhile effort to uh, evaluate how we can use social media more effectively. Do you think MCPS is effectively using social media? Mm, I think they're learning. Do you think, think they're learning? They're learning because, um, so with the, with the recent uh, COVID-19, uh, COVID-19 information uh output or communication strategy, we see, uh, at least I see a little bit of difference in, in terms of how they approach it. They are very proactive in trying to get the information out it, well, through all channels. And of course, there are also PDA leaders and others who are trying to use their, basically use their own personal channels to get the correct information out. So I think at the end, I think everyone's learning. Mm-hmm. So we're improving. And I think that's, and going forward, this is something that we have to continuously do. You brought up the COVID-19, the coronavirus yeah. that we're all um, enduring and trying to figure out as we go. There's no, uh, there's really no game plan other than to be prepared and from state government down to municipal government, mm-hmm. to Montgomery County Public Schools. What is your reaction to Montgomery County Public Schools' um, 
information sharing what do you, how do you think that they're they're handling this what do you what do you think um i think in terms of informational sharing i think they are they're, they're doing better compared to yeah. other efforts they're doing a little uh, they're doing better but i think what um and i've been i've been saying this on facebook too it's just um it's great that they they have a two we were shutting down for two weeks to kind of do uh, to um enact this social distancing strategy yeah. and try to get ahead of the, the, the virus. But I think at the end, we should be proactively looking into uh, evaluating certain strategies that we may end up using. For example, we talked a lot about teleteach and remote, <laughs> remote education. Well, we haven't really done this in, in the scale that we are going to do this. So it helps for them to try it out in certain schools and basically flush out a lot of the implementation details and potential bugs that they're going to run into. Yeah, and I think in the next, I think in the next couple of weeks, this is something that MCPS should be looking into, working with the teachers, working with administration, and see what that looks like. Do you think that they are prepared to administer education um, through technology, through um, a, you know, like a WebEx program? Are they, are they, do they have the capabilities? in place to function outside of the classroom and still communicate with all of their students so that they're not delayed in their instruction. I think MCPS has some of these programs in place and the technology technology is more or less in place, but at the end this is about scale. Right. So so at the end I think I think the answer is yes and no. Do they have the technology? Sure. Do they have to know how an operational experience? Not quite. It is concerning, though, that now that schools have been canceled for two weeks, and that was an order um, at at the state government level, and we heard, of course, yesterday from Governor Hogan and um, Dr. Salmon, who's our state superintendent, there's been concerns about students who would typically eat at school that they no longer have um, some, you know, sustenance or nutritious foods. And, you know, we understand that these things – this is very an unlikely scenario, but it's concerning that where what are we going to do? That's going to I know it's going to interrupt parents' schedules, and um, fingers crossed that uh, that parents will be able to quickly adapt to this. I mean, it's not like a a one or two day snowstorm. It's a this is a global pandemic yeah. on a on a, a level that we have never quite seen before, and we're all as I said navigating this in real time. So I'm. I'm curious to your thoughts on what uh, you know, what might be the economic impact on this. I think at the end, economic impact um, is simply there's a reduction in economic activities mm-hmm. and and consumption. So, hopefully, long, well, long story short, it's basically now we we uh, we're reducing our spending and, and consumptions, and a lot of parents, especially low income parents, who are who are working hourly jobs, they yeah. are yeah. So they're, they're impacted the hardest because that's a major challenge. Yep. Some parents who are yeah in the hour hourly positions. I mean, there's thousands of parents all over this county that who might work in the food service industry, mm-hmm. uh, for example, uh, might work at grocery stores or you know just take your your pick of the, the different locations that are going to be severely impacted who mm-hmm. may not be able to a chi- afford childcare while yep. they have to go to work. That's that's concerning, and I know that these are issues that all of us feel, and especially the Board of Education. Yep. So, um, I want to ask you about um, a little bit of a side question mm-hmm. outside of policy. We've heard a lot from candidates; each each of them have different perspectives mm-hmm. on 
policy and the the boundary analysis. So, and I think what parents are looking for are independent voices, independent thought leaders that mm-hmm. are not going to be co-opted by any particular special interest group or organization. So, Jay, I want to ask you directly, are parents able to count on you, are taxpayers able to count on you to be that independent voice on the Board of Education? I definitely think so, because throughout this entire process, I've been testifying and also attending these public meetings, and I've been voicing my concerns regarding this boundary analysis. So one of the things that, that I've been pretty um, repetitive about is the, the metrics that they're using for, for the boundary analysis. So the stated purpose of the boundary analysis was to develop an interactive tool and um, some and data analysis effort to inform future boundary studies. Well, if we look at some of the metrics that they're using, um, I'm not entirely sure if the um, basically I'm not entirely sure if the current boundary analysis would meet that objective, because boundary studies in essence are trace studies. You have four factors, and at the end you will have to conduct trace between these four, right? And just simply a lot of the the metrics that they're that's just being used in the boundary analysis right now. They're either one, the normalized uh, metrics, uh, metrics like indexes, or relative, like percentages. So if I were to conduct a trade study, how would I how would I know what I'm trading? I'll give you an example. So for example, if there is two adjacent clusters where there one one cluster has capacity and the other does not, but in order to utilize the um, schools with excess capacity, it would meant an increase of commute time of 10 minutes. So I'm basically now trading 10 minutes for, say, 20% reduction in an overcrowded cluster. Now, 20% of what? 20% of 400 kids versus tw- uh, 20% of 1,000 a, a kids. That's a huge difference. So if I'm using this tool, as a as basically as a guy as a guy for for this trade study, I'm not entirely sure you you can tell what you're trading. And I think at the end, if this this is meant to help decision making, I I, I don't think <laughs> I don't think the current setup is achieving that objective. Yeah, I want to talk to you about the boundary study, the mm-hmm. boundary analysis. So a direct question that mm-hmm. I want to ask you is, do you support altering contiguous boundaries in Montgomery County? And would there be any situations where you would support changing non-contiguous boundaries? And do you support the neighborhood schools concept? Um, so the, your last question is the easiest one. I'm in support of the neighborhood uh, school concept. So if you go to my website, one of the big concepts that I have is community schools. So, And this is it for both low-income and so-called middle-class families. At the end, I think the schools should serve as the central hub for a community. And without neighborhood schools, that model does not, you know, cannot function. Again, like like we were talking about inequities, especially with with areas where you have a high concentration of, of poverty. If you if these parents, these low income parents, are asked to go to a school that's further, at the end of the day, they would no longer be. You're basically locking them out out of out of community activities, because they put bluntly, they can't they can't do it. I'll give you a personal example. It took me an arm and a leg to get my my mom to go to open school and open school night and to meet my teachers. Mm-hmm. And precisely because the school is 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 thirty minutes away from my house by driving in LA, and my mom gets off at seven seven p.m. 
So, and it's probably started at seven or seven thirty. Exactly. Yeah. So, the point being, the the point being, if we are talking about community schools, then geographical distance needs to be accounted for, which means that you need neighborhood school for this to work, for for the community con- uh, school concept to work. Now, t- when we talk about contiguous boundaries, so in the county boundary study and in other studies, I'm in support of the concept. Um, I think the practices of making islands are somewhat, it, it creates operational complexity, and that is something I personally do not like. So MCPS is a large system, and if we are serious about reducing or keeping our operating costs, or at least the transportation part of it in, in check, then one thing we need to look into is to how to reduce that operational complexity. And non-contiguous um, um, school assignments does not contribute to to that on the same line as the boundary analysis which i know is expected to be released sometime hopefully soon as you said it's Mm -hmm. it's now delayed let's put the cards on the proverbial table we've heard a lot about the concept of busing over Mm -hmm. the last few months that ties directly into this analysis and i really think that's it's setting up this board of education race to be who's in support of the neighborhood schools, who's in support of the analysis and perhaps shifting students to another school for, as they describe, capacity issues and whatnot. But I want to know, and I want you to give it straight to parents and students and teachers, do you support this concept of busing? Why or why not? Mm, I do not really support this uh, concept of busing because it depends. Well, you also have to look at the, some of the issues or some of the uh, issues that uh, led to busing being proposed as a solution. So there were a lot of talks about segregation and, uh, and of course, concentration and poverty. Um, with segregation, I think we need to look at this. Uh, we need to have an updated look on, on this issue. I think, I think we can all, all, all um, recognize that there were a history of segregation mm-hmm. by race in, in Montgomery County. But I think that prob- uh, that issue has evolved over the years. So Montgomery County has become far more diverse than, than it was, yeah. say, 20, 30 years ago. Now we're a minority-majority school system. Exactly. So, And from, what I, from, from my volunteer experience, one thing I realized is that immigrant parents, at times, they do like to live, uh, to cluster together. Because simply, when you come to this country and basically you you know nothing else you seek comfort and familiarity you seek support from people who share that cultural heritage so is it okay so you would have on surface that where certain communities are a majority of a certain ethnic group but it's not necessarily the because of uh, institutional barriers or or some other reason that they're grouped together not so much at the end i think they're simply they are simply seeking that support and building that support network, and also we also need to look in. Um, and, al- and also with the busing strategy, I'm not a big fan of making kids into commuters, no. because you know back in back in New York City and back in LA, I, yeah. You, you said your school was what thirty minutes away from your home. Thirty minutes away. How long is it? How long is too long for an elementary school student? Let's just say, for example, to sit on a bus and go to school. I think thirty minutes is is. is it, for me, is tops. I would, you know, if if it takes more than thirty minutes for my kids to get to school, I would. Well, I have means, so I can look into other, um, you know, look into maybe moving closer. But at the end of the day, the 
the the I think my personal personal ceiling is at thirty minutes. You know, we've talked about the boundary study, we, and that flows in with the concept of neighborhood schools, and that brings another issue: is that when someone buys a house in a particular neighborhood. Mm-hmm. There is a a reasonable expectation from that home buyer that your son or daughter would eventually go to that particular cluster of schools. And there's there's an argument out there to say, no, you really shouldn't expect that because it could change. There there could be. And I've heard that there's what some what thirty eight percent of Montgomery County public schools are not necess- students are not going to that particular neighborhood school. But is it fair to say that there is there you, someone should have a reasonable expectation to attend the school that is closest to them to where they live? I think so. I think it's reasonable to expect that you know my kid would go to that school and or that middle school because at the end of the day, it, it, this is about daily daily life planning. So I you would want to know where your kids go to school so that you can plan out your day so you know what time you're leaving you know leaving your house mm-hmm. to drop off your kid or what time to get the kids ready so that they can wait for the school bus or what time to leave the house to walk to school i think these are reasonable expectations because when you're buying a because school at the end is infrastructure just like when you're buying a house you're looking at your commute time say for example if i take the metro um okay so in morning traffic it's about 15 minutes of shady grove metro you know, that is something that I would consider. You yeah. take the metro from Clarksburg? or An example. Yeah. An example. <laughs> I, I just, used to. I used to. I, I wish that there was a metro in Clarksburg. Well, they're talking up about that uh, light rail concept, but um, monorail concept, but that's another story. But Well, let's. we need something in Montgomery County to mitigate this traffic problem. It's yeah. a mess. It know? is. My wife works in Bethesda, and from our front store, front porch to downtown Bethesda to her office, in the morning, her average commute time is about an hour. And that's crazy. It's 12 miles. 12 miles. Yeah. It is frustrating. Now, I'm lucky enough to work in Gaithersburg. I work in the Kentlands. And mm-hmm. from our home here to the Kentlands, it's five or six minutes. But, oh, gosh, but we you know, we take our kids to school, and it's it's a challenge because there's not a one-size-fits-all about how parents yeah. – uh, Yet take or choose to take their children, whether they get on a bus or they get on a tri- a metro mm-hmm. car. Uh, so Montgomery County is such a huge place. Exactly. So let me ask you this question. There has been significant controversy around the boundary analysis. I was hoping that you could frame that and put it into perspective and help voters and taxpayers and students and teachers and parents really understand this controversy. How did it arrive how where did it come from and you know what can is there a is there a middle ground between those who support or oppose the the analysis what what say you i think there should be a, i think there is a middle ground to all of this i well to to explore why this issue was so controversial i think it has we have to go back to the of county boundary study so a lot of mistrust around the process around the intent of this this boundary analysis came from that because at the very beginning, the uh, the Up County Boundary Study was about facility utilizations. So this was said in various you know public information meetings held by MCPS, and that was people's expectation. Now we fast forward to the end of the process, and then you look at how you you look at superintendent's recommendation. It mentioned something. Uh, it mentioned that they're testing out a new FAA policy and how they want to balance. Um, so, uh, socioeconomic dispar- disparities, but that was not the in, uh, at least when it, to the public that was not the intent of the the boundary study. 
So a lot of parents were, you know, you were aghast at at how this was conducted. You told me A, but B happened. So and the boundary analysis public meetings happened right on the right on the tail of this. So you can imagine people who are looking at the county boundary study and looked at what happened. And when they go to these public meetings, there is very there was very little trust in what MCPS had to say. Where do you think that mistrust came from? How is it the lack of communication? Maybe there's a feeling that MCPS or its administration are being less than transparent. What do you think? I think I think there there is an issue of transparency, and I think there is also an issue of understanding the um, so-called the the situation on the ground. So. If you look at some of the communications that MCP has put forth, it seemingly is always half half step behind the public sentiment. Hmm. So, for example, after the Julius West public meeting, they sent out a, a... And for anybody who doesn't know what that means. Oh, so the consultant who was hired to do these public meetings held a series of um, these public meetings with the uh, public engagement meetings. And at the Julius... Julius and one of them was held at Julia Julius West Middle School. It was one of the most controversial ones because angry parents showed up and disrupted the meeting. Hmm. And right after that meeting, MCPS put out a an, an a message that says this is not a boundary study, this is a boundary analysis. But I think they're missing the point in that parent I think a lot of parents understand that this is a boundary analysis. They are not they are not happy about this boundary analysis because of what what may happen afterwards. People are worried about what may happen after the boundary analysis. Yeah. And that's, I think, where MCPS was missing. And and you feel that they didn't necessarily communicate the, that properly? What They didn't communicate that intent properly. Yeah. So at the end, they're doing a boundary analysis and they're telling people that they're doing a boundary analysis, but they're missing the point in that people understood that it was analysis. They simply, <laughs> they, they, they were worrying about what you're going to do afterward. And I think that's, that message was missing that, that little piece there. And talking about middle ground, at the end of the day, if it is an, an analysis, I think that's an okay thing to do. I'm an engineer. So if you are to conduct a trade study, you would want to have that data. But at the end of the day, we MCPS needs to demonstrate that this is truly its intent. And I think this is where, where why, why it is so controversial, because there is very little trust in MCPS's intent right now, and they need to rebuild it. You know, that is a great transition into my next question. And I want to ask you about things that Montgomery County Public Schools can change, that you would change and three things that you think Montgomery County Public Schools are doing well. You mentioned, of course, transparency. Mm-hmm. I hear that consistently among the candidates. I don't think that that is a topic up for debate, that Montgomery County Public Schools could be better communicators and could be more transparent and f- be more effective in their means to communicate with with parents and the community as the whole, on the whole. Mm-hmm. So... What do you think about MCPS? What do you what would you change in addition to the lack of transparency that has been outlined so far in our discussion? So I think one thing that I want to change is being proactive on all fronts. So so we were used to COVID-19 19 one uh this this thing as an example. So they talk a lot, talk a lot about uh remote distance and remote learning and teleteach. I think we should have been looking at this a, a long time ago. So I think one of the things 
as a board, if if I'm elected as a board member, that I would do is a constant um, improvement and forward-looking process where we look at the various means that uh, new technologies or education methods that we can use or available. We actively we evaluate them and see how we can use them to improve our own system. I think this is the one thing that that I felt the board sometimes are not doing. It, there is a lot of inward focus of a lot of, um, this may sound bad, but basically staring at your own toes mm -hmm. and not looking up. I think this is one thing that I would do as a board member is that look up. Mm. So look at what's around you, look at what's available around you and actively evaluate and see if that can be useful for MCPS. And at the end of the day, so I was talking to, to someone who actually worked in MCPS for a long time and has actually advocated for the for some type of remote, like mass remote learning type hmm. of uh, implementation. But college can, they can do that. They can. I mean, I'm in grad school now, almost done, thank God. Um, and I know that based on the uh, coronavirus mm -hmm. outbreak, our classes have been in-person classes rather have been canceled and as I'm moving into a new course on this Wednesday we are going to be doing it remotely and it's going to be a an online class and we're going to occupy that same time as we mm -hmm. would from 6 until 9:30 so if colleges can do it then we should be able to do it as a school system on the, uh, uh, like Montgomery County Public Schools. Theoretically, I think theoretically, theoretically we can, but I think, I think MCPS is also, also a little complicated in that we, we are a, um, how would you call that? Basically, we are a reflection of the society, mm -hmm. of our society. So there are many people, there are people with many, many different circumstances. Right. And as, they may not have a access to internet. Yeah, we had that extensive discussion on Facebook. Some people actually do have problem accessing broadband, even if they have the monetary resource to do it. So, it's, what what discussion on Facebook? So this was a uh, this was a discussion on Facebook with a gentleman. We were talking about you know how to how to do this teleteach, and so we had a back and forth. Um, there were there were some parents who mentioned that you know in some area of the county, the broadband is spotty, they and so is cell signal. And plus. The the students aren't they're not going to be able to go to the library because yeah, I think they're, they're closing yeah they're closing that too so that's going to be a challenge mm -hmm. and it looks like they're going to use the spring break to make this time up yeah but some parents have already scheduled look we had my mother in law mm -hmm. lives in Florida we were planning to put our kids on an airplane and send them and see grandma mm -hmm. I don't know now because they're going to need to make up this time yep and. I'm thinking that if they're going to be home, these the students, for two weeks, they should have instructional time. I mean, there's something that, I mean, fingers crossed that they will be still learning and being educated, but having that two weeks in the middle of a major semester, I mean, that's that's not conducive to learning. Yep. And so, so that's why we go back to that being proactive point, because what I think one of the reasons why they're doing this the short-term close route. So you can, so from the news, we learned that MCPS is doing this as a short-term method. Mm -hmm. Why don't they try to figure this out? So my point being, I think we could have done this a lot sooner. Yeah. Not, we don't have to wait until there that we are, we are facing this operational challenge and then try to figure out how to do it. We could have been looking at this a lot, lot sooner and we could have, we could have had a contingency plan if we did that, but so it uh, right right now right now there is a feeling of we're building the airplane as we fly it and 
Well, if anybody knows about airplanes, <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't build you don't build airplanes when you fly, while flying. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, some some candidates have they talked about bringing more financial responsibility mm-hmm. to Montgomery County Public Schools, but as you know, most of our spending is on teacher salaries. It's mm-hmm. teacher base, and there's not much wiggle room in the budget. And of course, we'll. We can talk about the different budgets and the different pots of money mm-hmm. in our in our school system. Would there be anything that you would cut as far as uh, as as far as the uh, financially with the school system? And is it could you be successful in that effort? And is there anything that you would want to add to our current budget uh, to improve educational outcomes? Mm, I think I think one thing that I would do. Uh, I would work with the superintendent to to consolidate some of the central office hmm. functions. I think he's already kind of starting that that process. So, In what respect? So basically, right now there were before uh, I think before then there were multiple I think four or five uh, central office uh, central uh, office um, organizations. So I think Dr. Smith has already moved to consolidate that into three big groups, and I think that's one um, that that's one good concept to to pursue. So we can reduce some of the overhead at the central office while maintaining that level of service and support to our teachers and administrators out in out in the schools. Basically, at the end of the day, you think NCPS is top heavy. Right now, it, there there is that feeling that it is top heavy, but I think we are also moving in that direction where we are trying to make our central office more efficient and and basically make that. Um, and then provide more resources to the school and teachers. There's also the talk of, you know, central office at times are not responsive or have the tendency to be heavy-handed and descript- uh, prescriptive in their policies. And I think having a leaner, more efficient, and simpler organization would help in that regard. And in terms of cutting, I think at the end of the day, is always a tough choice. Right. Because we're in... in um, we would want to retain our best teachers. And in order to do that, we need to have competitive salaries. So we need to have competitive salaries that are that are comparable to that of D.C. or Fairfax. The Kerwin Commission is calling for all teachers to begin at $60,000 a year. Is that something that you support? I think that's that's reasonable giving the... Um, I mean, the living standards here. So Cost I, of living is high in Montgomery County. Yeah, a lot of our teachers actually don't live in the county precisely for that reason. So Because they can't afford it. Yep. Yeah. So um, Let me ask you about a independent third-party audit. We don't have that currently in sure. Montgomery County Public Schools. Do you think that an independent resource should take a look at our budget and really give us a fair shake and uh, an objective look? I think so. I think we do need to have a... Consi- um, uh, a persistent independent audit of of our budget and also also an evaluation strategy. We have been putting money toward closing the achievement gap and opportunity gap for quite some time now, but it seems like we don't we we should we are not doing as much to evaluate whether these monies are spent effectively. So I think in in addition to the independent audit, we also need need to have a mechanism to evaluate some of the strategies that we're using and see whether it is it's effective. Now, I think that is a really complicated issue in that you have to work with teachers to figure out how to accurately measure this. Mm-hmm. And then also also there's the data collection part, which actually is 
is somewhat contentious in that because it increases without having additional support personnel. It increases the workload, administrative workload of the teachers, and teachers would like to spend more time teaching rather than you know. I hear that a lot from yeah. teachers. Yeah, from so. our kids' teachers. You said that you you have a you have a four year old. They're not quite yet in in public schools, mm-hmm. but soon enough you'll you'll have that fun. And <laughs> so you and your wife, that's it's going to be a fun time. So I know parents and the voters they're they're asking candidates, what is it that what positions have you held in schools, or maybe how you're somehow related to MCPS and what you've done for the school system. That way they can gauge uh, your interaction. So let me ask you that question directly. What um, what what have you done to to be inside of Montgomery County Public Schools? So for the past four years, I've served on various advisory committees for the MCPS. So one of which was ESOL slash bilingual advisory committee. The other was the district assessment. Uh, uh, advisory committee and then of course there is the uh, Asian Pacific American uh, Student Achievement Action Group it's That's a mouthful a, that is a mouthful <laughs> and the the ESOL advisory committee mm-hmm. how does that work is it bringing in new educational techniques to help students learn who who, who do have um, a first language that is not English um, for that advisory committee a lot of us is uh, a lot of it is trying to um, encourage and we and uh encourage our teachers one of the main things that we worked on was a ESOL award for you know basically it's like the ESOL teacher of the year award so we do a lot of um, evaluating what the teachers are doing and in doing so we actually can see the the, the various means that ESOL teachers are using to to do their job and from that um, we can basically pick out some of the more useful practice uh, more effective practices and whatnot um, but yeah, for ESOL and bilingual, that was one of our main job was to evaluate a lot of the candidates for that ESOL, <laughs> ESOL wow. Teacher of the Year. Wow. Um, and I know that Montgomery County, I believe the highest um, percentage of minority students is Latino. Mm-hmm. And then there's uh, Caucasian white students. And then I believe um, African-Americans. And then I, I think there's, what, 12% Asian population? 14%. Okay. Yeah. So around there. Um so clearly, we have to reach in all pockets of our very culturally diverse community. Yep. And I think you made a point earlier that is salient that I want to just hone in on a bit, that there's communities in Montgomery County of immigrants, and they do they do uh, stick together. They, 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 do. they communicate with others often. They live in a, in a similar uh, places, and they, uh, they're, they're really... You know, and they assimilate together. Yep. So, how is it that we can reach out into the immigrant communities and make them for, feel more welcome, beginning with our school system? I think first, I, I think first we have to work with some of our, our nonprofit lead uh, partners mm-hmm. and community leaders because they serve as that that bridge between that community and and MCPS. Also, uh, one one support position that I want to mention is the parent community coordinators. The parent community coordinators at times are that interface between you know the community, the school, and other, the, the supporting services that that school have. So I think that parent community coordinator is also important. At the end, at at the end, I think MCPS should be changing their outreach strategy for some of these communities. At times, a lot at times, the MCPS would expect some of these parents to come to come to them. 
and if they pro and they will provide language services. But at the end, I think we need to take a more proactive approach and go to these communities. So for ex I'll give you an example. So especially doing boundary studies. So now MCPS is doing a lot of these public information meetings, and that's great. They provide uh, provide translation and language services. But if you go to go to these enough, you will realize that the attendance from the hard so-called hard-to-reach communities are still not there. So we have to ask the question, why are they not coming? So if they're not coming, what strategy should we use to, to get the information to them? And one of the things that, you know, from my, from my experience volunteering with, with the Asian community is that, well, you sometimes have to go to them. They have social functions that are, you know, that happens every now and then. They have, they have patterns. You can go to them. Right. And I think that's the strategy that MCPS need to, need, need to look into more is how do we actively go to these communities. And, and an important advisor committee, especially, to, yeah. to understand the, the cultural differences inside of the community yep. specifically. And that way, you will, then you'll understand, in turn, how to reach them, how yep. to communicate with yep. them, and what the best method and vehicle for communication. Yep. I, it, it makes sense. Let's talk about literacy in schools. Okay. Um, what do you think about how can we increase literacy, literacy beginning at a an early age? And would you ever support a return to a phonics-based program? Phonics-based. I think um, in terms of increasing li literacy, I think this a a very interesting program that our library has right now is called a thousand book program. Yes. So this is for um, basically there's a sheet for you to keep track of, but basically it's trying to get your kids, uh, your your small children, uh, small ch uh, children. To read a thousand books before they get into get into the school, so I think that actually is a um, very good strategy. At the end of the day, at at the end of the day, the student only spends so much time in in the school. There is the that is there is the family engagement part that we have to, to do, and I think programs such as those is something that we should be looking at. How do we provide these books and make them accessible such that these kids will will basically will have more time reading? So at the end of the day. My my philosophy is that you know effort counts for a lot. So if you put in the time correctly, you will get the result that you want. So thousand books program is something that we can look into, and returning to a phonics program, I think so too. But I think we also need to look into the a lot of our kids are from immigrant families, so the phonics program may or may not put them in a disadvantage. But I think that's something we have to evaluate. But early childhood um, literacy programs like the thousand book programs. That's something that yeah. we can certainly try to look for means to implement it in, in our elementary, in, in elementary schools. Jay, the big issue front and center in state politics is the Kerwin Commission recommendations, the cost, how we pay for them. What are your thoughts on the recommendations? And I know that you're not responsible for coming up with a funding formula. We all know that Montgomery County Public Schools has no taxing authority. That is the Board of Education. Mm -hmm. But I'm interested to hear your perspective specifically on the the recommendations. Are they good? Would they help improve our uh, our our current system? Will they uh, they will they close up our achievement gap? What say you? I think two of the recommendations that I really like is one the. Um, better pay for teachers. Mm -hmm. So we talked about this a little bit, you know, it at the end of the day, if your salary is not competitive, there is no you you can't really retain teachers. And if you can't retain teachers at the end you don't you can't really home home grow a um your own crop of experienced teachers. So I think that at the end is important. And I think we need to realize that teachers are professionals and they should be compensated as such. 
the other part that I really like is the concept of community schools. This is part of my platform as well, of how how we use the school as a centralized hub, uh, especially for high uh, high poverty areas, as a as a vehicle for you know for delivering social services. And even if you're not a high poverty school, you know having the school serving as the central hub to the community, I think is at the end is like a, essentially a town hall. Yeah. Yeah. And I was actually at Poolsville last week, and one of the I think I think a great concept that they have is the multi-use facility yeah, concept. And, they do, and that's exactly that because they're a small town. They want they want this school and the uh, community facility to be that you know to be the center of town. And I think that's that actually is a very innovative um, planning technique, and also I think it is also financially fis- uh, fiscally responsible. You're basically Making one cap capital investment to perform various functions. So I think uh, I think that's from the current uh, from the current commission um, one of the recommendations like community community schools. That's something I that I really like. Yeah. Now we have to figure out how to pay for it. Hmm. Yep. And I know you're not responsible for that, but I always I'm I'm taking suggestions so we can pass them along to lawmakers because <laughs> look, we have to. We know that the recommendations are vitally important to improving educational outcomes in the state of Maryland. Mm-hmm. We, we understand this blueprint for education is a, a, a forward-thinking method to really align our education system with the rest of the world. Yep. But we still have – you're still asking taxpayers to fund this, and there has to be they – they're a stakeholder in this. There has to be a takeaway for them as well. That's concerning that there's just, it looks like that there really isn't a true method to pay for these. It is, I, I think that that is the major concern right now. Um, so I'm pretty sure everyone has heard about the um, the bill, the house bill that wanted to uh, basically decrease the sales tax rate, but also tax services. Tax services, yeah. I think one of the biggest pitfall in that is that there was no guarantee that this money were going to the current Well, Kerwin. they said that the casino dollars right. were supposed to, to go. Up. Yeah. Please. Yeah. So the casino money that we had, you know, when when the referendum was put to the voters, one of the big selling points was that we're gonna this will lead to greater funding for education. But you know, about a couple of years down the line, we we realized that this was not the case. Look, it happened with Thornton with the Thornton Commission. I think this is the lesson that we, I think this is a lesson that is already learned, but we're looking for means to implement. So yeah, I agree, and that's the. I think we all support advancing education through the numerous recommendations. And I, I may have been uh, one of the small percentage of Marylanders who read all 243 pages. Wow. Good for you. <laughs> well, look, I'm even though I'm a busy guy, I'm still a boring guy. So I try to I try to read as much as I can. But I'm I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm I'm sure that taxpayers they want to know that even if they don't have a direct relationship with Montgomery County's public schools mm-hmm. that they're still getting their money's worth because it is the taxpayers it is it's an investment they're Every, investing yeah exactly investing. but so yeah we're investing and we want to make sure that one the money actually goes to where where, where we're set we're investing right. and second we need we also well we come back to the um, the very difficult issue of how to how to get these money so we can invest and so Repurposing, the, making sure that the casino money can go toward this is one is one part, and I think um, as we as we move forward, there will I, I think we will have to there are some difficult choices that we will yeah. have to face. Yeah, but I think 
I I don't think we should disagree on the importance of investing in 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 our education because at the end of the day, this this well I don't have a citation for this, but the investment in education basically the return is eight to one. I don't have a have a this is something that I heard, but I don't have a citation for it. But long long the short of the long is this is a worthy investment. So we can talk about how we fund this, but this is something that we need to do. Fair enough. There's numerous numerous instances, Jay, of MCPS employees who have been arrested for, convicted of sexual assault, sexual violence, misconduct in our schools. And I think that this is a serious problem that's facing MCPS, and parents feel that our administration and even Superintendent Jack Smith, they're not adequately addressing the problems. What do you think about this? I think I would actually agree with some of these parents, especially with the Moscas case. So I live mm, in Clarksburg. Glad you brought that up. Yeah, I live in Clarksburg, and I use their track um, to 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 exercise mm-hmm. a lot. And that was one of the issues that popped up to me was the practice field is on the other side of their their stadium. There is a good good at least quarter mile between the practice field where the coaches are and the locker room. So in this in in this in intervening time, there there isn't a whole lot of adult supervision. So how do we make sure that the kids are not you know doing doing something that they're not supposed to? And and also the more important po- point is, after something bad happened, we are supposed to hold these people accountable. But it didn't seem like it happened that way. It's simply, you know, the person. Um, the coach resigned. The principals was resigned. Uh, was reassigned to somewhere else. It seems like it was more about moving people out of the sli- uh, limelight and hoping people forget. Hmm. But I think these people need to be held accountable because we come because the details coming out from news report the, is troubling. It's it's not only troubling; it's horrific. Yeah. The parents expect that their community is safe and at commun- Speaking of community schools. Damascus is one of those yeah. communities where really that it's it is tight knit and it does revolve around a high school, a middle school. I grew up in a small town mm-hmm. in, in Western Maryland in Williamsport, and I, I grew up just outside of Williamsport. But still, Jay, uh, when I was a kid on Friday nights uh, during football season, whole town would go to yeah. the football games. Whole town would come out to support the girls' volleyball team. Yeah. They would come out and watch the basketball or the the high school band or the track team, the baseball team. Look, this is what it's all about. That's the center hub of the community. That's where you you get to know your neighbors, you get to know your teachers who may be the coaches. Yep. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of parents up in Damascus that I've talked to that say this thing was not handled correctly. We don't feel any better about this. MCPS was not transparent and something needs to change. And I would agree with them because I, I can tell that they're tight knit because there are so many local businesses in that in that in that community that support their football team, their you know, their fable football team. Yeah. And it is is really it's just like that movie Friday Night Lights. It's, that, it's a great it, movie. Yeah. So it, it's just the it, the dynamics very similar and I think I think we we're coming back to the issue of trust again. So yeah. I think this issue broke the community's trust. That the, they expected MCPS. But can MCPS can they regain the community's trust? I think that's that's a long process, but it has to be done. They, I, I think, at least from what I can observe right now, that they're taking steps to do that. They're being more proactive when it comes to this type of stuff. So there were a couple, um, 
So another couple couple incident incident incidences in Clarksburg and elsewhere, and I think MCPS in which they're handling right now, I've seen some improvement at least from the communication mm-hmm. side. So, so I think they're moving to in that direction, but we we'll see. We briefly mentioned Superintendent Jack Smith, Dr. Smith, who's our superintendent of Montgomery County mm-hmm. Public Schools, the largest school system in the state of Maryland. What, one hundred and forty thousand students or more? Sixty now, I think. Okay, yeah, yeah keeps growing. What do you? How would you grade his performance, and what do you think that he's done well, and what do you think that he can do better? Mm, I think for the past four years, with the surging enrollment growth, um, to I'll I'll give him a give, give him a B minus. B minus. B minus. Okay. It is extremely challenging to be the new superintendent in a school with a school system with surging enrollments. So and for that past four years, I think he's he's also learning a lot about his his own you know his own school system. It's a big job. It's a big job. Um, so in, in general, I give him a B minus. Okay. Because for is he's dealing with with a lot, and there are basically he's also trying to basically how learn how to drive this car too. That's right. So so for the past four years, I'll give him give him a B minus. What do you think that he's doing well as the as the a leader of our our massive school system. Hmm. I think one one thing that he's doing well is he's um, in terms of uh, implementing new programs. So he has championed the dual dual immersion program, which I think is actually a pretty inno- innovative way of taking advantage of our student population's uh, special skill. Right. So you have schools where where certain basically a certain. Um, there are there are a group of students who are fluent in one language and the other is fluent in in English. So basically, the, the concept of the dual language po- uh, immersion program was that you basically have have um have classes taught in that language and have those students who are native speaker of that foreign language to help the the native English speakers learn that language too. I think that's a really in, innovative model. I think that's one thing that he has done well, and yeah. Fair enough. Um, let me ask you about the discussion that says that student member of the board, our student member of the board, that they should increase the stipend. And I want to ask you how you feel about that and whether you think that the student member of the board should be able to chair a committee. Mm, I think the student board member should, should not be able to chair a committee. I think at the end of the day, student voice is important, but I think life experience is also important as well. So I think one of I think one of the big takeaway from this position was that you get mentorship from adult board members who who some of them have been around for, you know, as they say, forever. Twenty years. Twenty some odd years. It, they are living institutional memory. And I think it some of these board members student board members would benefit from their experience and wisdoms. And so I think it help I think I don't think the SMOP should chair a, a, a community by themselves. I, I see it more as a mentoring opportunity for these young young students, and so should there be? Should they be paid? Well, right now, right now they're not exactly paid. It's a stipend, so if for their co- for for college and whatnot, so right. I think that system is it is is reasonable. Now, as to the amount of stipends, that I think is debatable. Yeah, I I think that uh, it is reasonable for parents to ask for taxpayers to say. Do you have the life experience and the qualifications to be making decisions on a a, a billion plus dollar budget? Mm-hmm. What two point three billion dollars? Yeah, just about. 
can students can the student member of the board be able to really make those complex education or rather make the complex budgetary decisions i know that when i was 17 years old 18 years old it it took me really until I'm in my 30s to to understand capital budgeting. And it's still difficult for me because I'm not an accounting, I was not an accounting major. Um, So going through an MBA program has, it's been a challenge for me. But I, at, at that age, and I'm not discounting their knowledge because our student members of the board have been especially smart. I mean, incredible. So I, you know, I think that there is a reasonable concern among parents about them making these decisions. I think so, yeah. So uh, just as you said, um, it, it's a very specialized skill, yeah. and it takes time to acquire, and I think that's where I think a lot of parents' concern is legitimate. And you've, you've, asked my, you've answered my question about the budgetary issues, but I want to ask you about the recent salary, the, the suggestion that Board of Education members be paid more. And we know that this job that you should you be elected it it's it's like a full-time job it is it really is and our board of education members should get credit because all of them are very deeply passionate about education improving the educational outcomes and they spend a lot of their discretionary time and like i said there some some board of education members just do only this job so is it reasonable for them to make more money than what they are now I think so, because even as an educational advocate for for the past four years, I can already, and my schedule is not nearly as as, as intensive as their, theirs, and it's, it's really, it, it takes a huge commitment. And some of the work that they do is, is important, mm-hmm. and they oversee half the county's budget, just be realistic. So I think they, their conversation is not reflective of that responsibility, and some of the, you know, some of the effort required to simply just carry out that duty. Yeah. You've probably been aware that a number of MCPS students have committed offenses that are violent in mm-hmm. nature. Jay, would you be in favor of allowing students to remain in our public schools with other students who desire to learn, or would you be in favor of moving these students with with behavioral issues, with who've done who've committed these offenses to move to an alternative school where they might be better served and not be a threat to the student population? I think one of the one of the things that uh, one of the reasons why these students are are in the public school was that there is state regulation kind of mandating the the ceiling, so to say, yes. the ceiling of uh, of an age where they where they where we have to provide that uh, public education to for them. And I think at the end, it is our duty to provide uh, provide that public education opportunities to these kids. But I think that there it there is there is certainly a better way to do it. So I think. Um, Montgomery College has uh, continuous and adult education programs. So for some of, of our older students with disrupted education, I think that is something that we can leverage more. And in terms of alternative programs, there is... Well, how old is too old to be in Montgomery County Public Schools? So we also had this interesting discussion on Facebook. Too. Oh, Facebook gets all the action. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. I think, I think well, social media has, has a way of bringing people together and discuss, you know. And it has a way of dividing people, too. Yeah, but every now and then you have pretty, yeah. di- you know, productive discussions on there. And one of the... No, things, I agree. So one of the one of the idea that I explored was that perhaps maybe we just cap it at 20, and if you are over 20, maybe then MCPS, well, then Montgomery College might be a better place. 
for these students to continue their education, especially when, when Montgomery College offers not just ESOL and, and you know, remedial um, education, it al also offers job training. So I think it, this, this, is, this serves as a very good transition for our kids too. Ba basically, they now have, not only are they getting the health, uh, education that they need, they also have options. They can stay in Montgomery College, get associate degree, and maybe transfer to a four-year university, or they pick up, you know, they, they pick up uh, a, a tray. Basically, there are more options at Montgomery College for our adult students mm -hmm. than, say, MCPS. While now, they, we are under, basically, we're under state mandate to provide that education, but that's not, that doesn't mean that this, may, this is the best place for them. And when it comes to um, our students with, you know, with um, violent criminal histories, I think, I think w as we have seen with some of some of them, so they were not allowed to return to school until the proceeding is is the the judicial proceeding is complete. So I think that that is a reasonable thing to do. Well, I want to ask you about farms. Um, would you be in favor of using the free and reduced meal numbers um, and the newly created the Ever Farms that you're familiar with mm -hmm. as the first priority in a redistricting decision? Um, I. Don't think I, I think it should be a factor, but I don't think it should be a priority fa priority. Factor. What are the other factors? So in, there are four factors: geography, facility utilization, stability of, of assignment. So at the end, like I said, boundary studies are like trade studies. So it depends <laughs> on the objectives, right? Yeah. But most most boundary studies are are meant to reduce facility utilization at certain schools, and if that is the objective, then you know facility utilization should carry a heavier uh, weight. Now I understand that we don't want to inevitably create a concentration of poverty, but I think that needs to be taken into context with the logistical realities of our of MCPS. Yeah. So at the end, there there's no no hard and fast. You know, there's no no yes or no or black and white answers to this. At the end, it's all about what you're trying to do with that boundary study. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to ask you. Um, somebody brought me up and brought this up, and they wanted me to ask you about it. Um, you've got a lot of signs out. <laughs> and somebody said that uh, you may not have had permission from the property or from the county to place those. But I, I got to ask you about that. So we have a huge volunteer team, and so in order to get everyone up to speed yeah. on the proper, you know, the proper uh, code for putting out yard signs and whatnot, is is difficult to to do. So because <laughs> we have turnover volunteers, and you can tell you can train one volunteers, and you expect that volunteer to train another, but. There, there's this disparity between, you know, between that. So all I can do, you know, the best that I can do is to continuously educate my volunteers. Right. But it, it, it is an issue that an ongoing issue. So it's. Hey, listen, if 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 uh, if signs signs get out the message, but. I, I'm thinking that the minor detail podcast is where the real. Oh, I'm sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we have these really, you know, important education discussions. Um, Jay, on your website, you mm -hmm. you list a couple of uh, issues, and I'm looking at it right here okay. on my big screen. Um, what do you what do you want to do in four years? You're, you might not be able to accomplish that goal in one, but you have four years should you be elected at large, and you're representing the entire county. What do you really want to do? So, so we've talked about this a lot. I mean, I, I have used this word a lot, being proactive. So 
what are, so you and I both know that we are now in the midst of a technological revolution. Yes. So the world is changing pretty fast, and our educational system is not quite you know quite catching up. Andrew Yang talked a lot about that in his presidential campaign. Because at the end of the day, that is that yeah. is a, a pressing issue that seemingly no one is willing to talk about. Mm-hmm. We again, we, we I've said this, and seemingly we're just really happy to stare our own toes. But you know the train is coming. So do we look up? I think we need to look up. So I think one of the one of the things that I want to do if I'm elected for the next four years is, you know, to evaluate our, our educational system and figure out a way for it for to make our kids future ready. So this is one of the main main line that I'm the, of my campaign is future ready education. So there are a couple things that that we really I really want to to um, continue doing and also uh, advocate for. So one of the thing is multi uh, interdisciplinary uh, STEAM education. So the way in which we taught, I'm, I'm sure you know as well. So science, math, they're taught as subjects, but you know in the real world they're not being used as as you know stovepipe subjects. They're yeah. used together. So we need to teach teach those subjects as as how they're used. I so, know my son loves this, this STEM program at Wooten. Yep. So that's one example, and and MCPS is moving in that direction where they are um, modifying the science cu- uh, curriculum to more mim- more uh, closely resemble the, the interdisciplinary approach that that is the real world. And there and that's great. But I think one one thing that our STEAM education is not catching is the ethics and responsible use of technology. Mm-hmm. So back in my engineering school days, the last class that before we walked away with the diploma was engineering ethics. But it, it was more about how to ensure that whatever you're designing does not lead to the loss of human life. We just finished a business ethics course, which is the last class, one of my last classes before I get my graduate degree. Mm-hmm. And the ethics in any industry mm-hmm. so important. Exactly. So, and it's more important in that there are new technologies coming up, and its applications are not well known. I think that is the that is the great unknown that's really scary because. If we, we basically dial it back to the say the forties and fifties when they were coming up <laughs> with the nuclear weapon, so when Oppenheimer finally realized what he did, he said we have become uh, become deaf. Hmm. So that is you know that is the issue that will keep on popping up in 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 the next next twenty to thirty years. And I think we need to start early early and get our students to start thinking. You know, one day maybe they are the next Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, and they will come across these bold decisions. And I've and hopefully they'll set up shop here in Montgomery County and create thousands of jobs. Yep, that's uh, that's certainly my 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 hope. That's the goal. Jay, um, go ahead and plug your website again and any upcoming events that you will be participating in. Okay, so given well, despite the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> so the my website is www.jayguanforboe.com and my Facebook page is Facebook uh, well facebook.com slash jg. The number four, B O E, and upcoming events. Well, there were many, but given the uh, COVID nineteen scare, eh, a lot of them has been canceled. A lot have been canceled, but um, there are multiple uh, candidate forums coming up, and I hope to see you there, e- either in person or in in the virtual or virtually. Yes, yeah. uh, Jay, I want to say thank you so much for coming out and braving uh, this. You know. As I said, the COVID nineteen, 
we're all just sort of learning as we go. But I really appreciate you coming in and talking about these issues. It's a personal stake for my wife and I, too. We have two kids in our our Montgomery County Public Schools, and uh, we really, um, we believe in public education, as as you do. And we... It, I wouldn't be where I am without public education, and I'm just so thankful that we can have these d- important policy-related discussions and get to the nuts and bolts and to the roots of these issues. So I want to thank you for joining a Minor Detail podcast for the first time today. I hope you come back again, um, and best of luck in your race ahead. Thank you. So Thank you for having me. Primary is April 28th, for now. For now. For now. And I believe that early voting begins on this April 16th. Yep, 16th to 23rd. So a month from today, or a month from uh, Monday. Yep. Today's the 13th. I get my days confused. Friday the 13th. Oh, yes. (laughs) So far, we've been pretty lucky. Yeah. And then uh, early voting extends through uh, the 23rd, I believe. Correct. So you're out there knocking doors, and I'm sure that uh, people are going to see you out in the campaign trail. Yeah. Jay, thank you so much for everything, and uh, good luck to you. Thank you. Maryland's 2020 primary election is on Tuesday, April the 28th. Early voting begins on Thursday, April 16th, and concludes on Thursday, April the 23rd. Be sure to check out a Minor Detail podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, CastBox, Overcast, or wherever you listen to your podcast. A Minor Detail podcast is on the web at aminordetailpodcast.com. For Maryland political news, please visit aminordetail.com. I'm Ryan Miner. Thanks for listening.